Hello and welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, I'm your host and creator of the Head First Podcast and the Head First Instagram page, which you can find using the handle Head First Zero. This podcast is here to bring you all things psychology and mental health, so check out the other episodes if you have an interest in psychology and in mental health. This podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, who are a mental health company who do counseling and psychotherapy, as well as corporate psychology services. So I work within their clinical team. If you have any questions regarding the services that I provide or the services that Spectrum provide, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie or contact me through my Instagram page. Hello and welcome to the Head First podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien. I am your host and I am absolutely excited about having Dr. Martha Deros Collado, um, who is a psychologist based in the UK, um, on to talk all things about kind of parenting, children, families, etc, etc, all related to mental health. Now, Martha, you have everything on your page. Um, I have found it such an amazing read. Uh, I'm not a parent yet. But I just find it so interesting, everything from managing grief with children to talking about sex and body parts and helping them manage emotions, mental health. It really is amazing. Um, so for anyone who hasn't um, checked out Martha's page, obviously, I'll be promoting it in the show notes and I'll be promoting it on my page. But it'd be great for people to kind of get to know you and a little bit about what your work is and, and who you are, basically. So if you could start with that, that'd be really helpful. Oh, thanks for having me, Joe. So I'm Martha and I'm a clinical psychologist. I have been working in the NHS for about 16 years now. And really my expertise is in pediatrics, which is working with children who are physically ill. So usually living with a chronic health condition that is either life limiting or life shortening in some way. And I guess that's why my feed has so much variety in it that actually my work is very diverse. Um, I've also got some family therapy training. So I do lots and lots of family therapy. So that's why I also obviously talk a lot about parenting. Um, and lots of parents on my page have asked about information for toddlers. So there's a lot of that on there. But a lot of what I do is exactly the kind of thing that you said, you know, talk about grief. I talk a lot about grief in my everyday job. I talk a lot about sex. I talk a lot about kind of bodies and physical illness. So I think that's probably what you see on my page that it's like very eclectic. And I guess that's a little bit me. So my job is never boring. Um, and I think that's probably what you see on my page. Yeah, it, <laughs> it changes yeah. every week. Yeah, your, your page itself is, is definitely not boring. Like I said, I'm not a parent, but it's an incredible read because obviously even as a non-parent, we all have these experiences of seeing other people's parents going to different homes and realizing, oh, this is different to how my parents work and how my families work. And I guess that's maybe one of the interesting parts of being a family therapist is like you're managing all these different dynamics and there's lots to, to consider. Do you find that difficult or is that like something that's like a challenge or something that's interesting to you? So I guess in terms of like the jargon, I think of it as systemic practice. So thinking about a system and that is really how I work. So because I work with children and young people and their families, we kind of think about the child as like the center of our work and then all the systems around the child, which include obviously the parents, but also include things like school, includes medical professionals if they're involved, includes their friendships, includes the country they live in includes you know society so it just kind of expands so all those kind of systems and networks around a child um 
is it challenging? Yes. I think the thing that I spend most of my time doing is trying to hear everybody's voice. <laughs> like my child. That's perfectly on cue, isn't it? <laughs> um, so kind of hearing children's voices is really important to me. And I think it's something, especially in the medical world, that we don't see because you know doctors focus on parts of the body that's their job to be specialists in a particular area and that's usually a physical area and i think what i bring what we bring as psychologists into that kind of space is allowing for the child to be heard and seen for who they are and to do that you usually have to get their voice out so it can be a challenge um within like the medical world it can also be a challenge just in family therapy because again i think one of the things that as a society we don't really value is that children are people in their own right they're not mini adults but that you know we need to respect them as humans and as we would respect other people of our own age and i think often we don't listen to children we dismiss what they say because we don't understand it or because we think well that's not true so I'm going to dismiss you rather than trying to be curious about the words that children use and the things that they say when they say them, they have a purpose, they're communicating something. And actually when we pay attention with curiosity, often we find, and we like uncover, discover things that we'd never see otherwise because we're thinking with our adult brains, not with the child's brain. So I guess the challenge for me is like twofold. So in the medical kind of health world, it's helping the doctors and the system around the child kind of listen to their voice and consider their views and opinions because it's their body that's being touched and things are happening too. And with family therapy and parents, it's about helping them stay really curious about what their child says and does. And rather than using their adult brain, kind of just stop, pause, question, try and understand where that's so rather than the dismissal yeah. thinking well, why did they say x y and z i give a really nice example actually the other night my daughter looked up and she said moon and i was like but that's not a moon i don't know what you're pointing at and i think at that point it's really easy because i did say i said there's not there's no moon i don't know what you're talking about and she was like moon and i was like no no moon and then i thought okay stop and I was like what do you mean and I went to her level and looked where she was looking and you could see the moon and I was like oh my god and again it's that thing of perspective like she was pointing to what looked like the ceiling and I was like I don't know what you're talking about we've got a skylight and she could see the moon from like a tiny corner and it was the moon and it's that whole idea of just because you can't see it from your perspective doesn't mean that what they're seeing or saying is it true in their world and their mind so i think that is a challenge because like i said it happens to me too that i will yes. say no that's not real and then i'm like oh stop so if it happens to me it's going to happen to most people you know that's really interesting what you say about like that we dismiss the child's opinion and i can like see what like previous experiences of of watching other parents and you know it's kind of this idea that oh they're a child their opinion is you know it's silly i have this adult rational brain and you know i know best and i'll make their decisions on their behalf is that something that's really common in your work because i, I can actually i can think of an exact scenario in my own world um when i was a child i used to call the light odd 
right? And for a long, long time, nobody knew what I was talking about. But my parents would always say on off when they were turning on and off the light switch. So I knew Adna as light. So I'd point at like the sun, I'd point at the lamp, everything was Adna. And they didn't make sense of that for a long, long time until they realized it was on off. But it's just that, again, that example of, you know, they are saying something they're trying to communicate. Um, and being able to interpret that is probably a skill in itself. Maybe that we're not taught that well. Yeah. Oh, I love that story, Joe. It's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. That's so, so lovely. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the skill is curiosity. I use curiosity all the time. So again, just with your lovely story, just, you know, you don't need to interpret it. You just need to say to your child, what, what's Odna? You keep pointing at things and saying, Odna, what is it? And you probably didn't have the language to say the light because that's what you called it, Odna. But even if they just started to like, start to understand, okay, there's something going on. Like every time we put on the light or he sees the sun or whatever to kind of understand that. And then it is about being curious and opening up conversations. So kind of being curious about your child's world and kind of, I guess the same way that we do as adults, when we meet somebody we don't know, like we ask them curious questions about them and who they are. And with children, it's the same. Like who, who is this little person that I live with, like my child who is developing language and children pick up language in such like a bit like sponges. Like once they start, it, it all comes but they often use words without really knowing what they are. They just use them because they've heard them. Again, my little girl keeps saying, I love you, which is so cute, but actually breaks my heart because I don't say I love you in English to her. And she says, I love you in English. And she doesn't say it to me. She says it when she's playing and she's caught it off nursery somewhere. And it's more like when she's really excited, she'll go, I love you. But she doesn't mean I love you. And I'm like, oh this is disappointing so disappointing so it's about so now I try and help her understand that what she's actually saying is I'm really excited or I'm happy so kind of helping her develop another word for that feeling because it's not I love you but she doesn't know that she's obviously heard some child use it it's a bit like your example the odd it's like finding a word that you've assigned a meaning to yeah um so I think it's about then really understanding what what your child is trying to say and what they want to communicate to you, and and I, I guess to I guess we're we're only in the introduction part of this, but just to kind of I guess what I wanted to get from this was to allow kind of parents some insight into how best to kind of meet their child's needs and all these different needs that they have, um, and kind of tie it back into the mental health side of things. Obviously, you work in maybe the physical health side of things, but it's very much focused on meeting their kind of psychological and emotional needs, I I would imagine. I think it'd be really interesting to kind of dip into a little bit um, what kind of role the parent plays or like even the family system plays when it comes to a child's mental health. Obviously, I know from from my own work, the early relationships and attachment are really important for for kind of mental health down the line. And I guess maybe they're the people that that I see when when they're adults. But in terms of a parent's role in supporting their children with their mental health, how important are those relationships and and how can you support them or how do they relate maybe to mental health? Yeah, they're really important. I think of, you know, to a child, their world is their parents. And one of the things we often forget is that 
as babies grow, develop, you know, their eyes open and they see things because initially they can't really see, they just see like everything is distant, etc. We often forget as adults that even though our children are, when they start to speak and walk and all these things that they can now do as toddlers, they are experiencing things for the first time, like the very first time. So a good example of that is something like Father Christmas. So we, we know Father Christmas, Christmas lights, all of this. When children are really small, they've never seen, the first time they see a Father Christmas is the first time they see Father Christmas. Like, you know, it's the first time they see a duck, a goose, a, and we forget that, like that initial first of everything. And the thing that we are as parents is we are their world. They are the, we are the thing that is constant to them. We are the thing they've always seen, hopefully, um, you know, and that is whether you're a parent of a biological child or an adoptive child, like, if your child is with you, then you are their constant. The world looks different lots of times, even in ways that we don't realize because to us, it's just the world, but to them, it's the first time. Um, so it could be the first time they see a truck or, you know, like things that you think they're everyday things. To your child, it's not, it could be brand new. So one of the things that I think parents provide, because it's really scary, I think, as a parent to realize that you have such a big influence on your child's development and their mental health, and their well-being, it can feel like a massive task. And I know that what I say next is really important because some parents will think, I'm really scared, I can't do this, you know, it's too big a responsibility. I think for me, the most important thing is that you provide your child with safety and with kind of, I'm gonna use the kind of common word love, but it's the connection. So if that's all you provide your child, you're doing a massive job. Because if you are that person that your child feels safe with, so safe when something's scary, whether it's the lorry or Santa or something really scary, like I'm having surgery or actually I feel depressed, I feel upset, I feel angry. If you're always safe to them, they will always come to you. And so you provide that like safe base, which is all about attachment that you've kind of touched on. And also if you are able to connect with your child and provide that guidance, then as a parent, it's not about being perfect, it's about being good enough. But if you're able to always be there because they they know they can come to you and that you'll guide them through things, even if sometimes maybe you can say, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this, like, but let's do it together, then that is really protective to a child and an adult's mental health. Because the protection comes from knowing that there is somewhere, someone who can keep you safe and connects with you and thinks about you, if that makes sense. And I guess that goes back to the dismissal. Yeah, it is. When we don't dismiss our children, and sometimes we will, but you know, it's about being good enough, then we provide our child with that idea that they're valued, that their feelings matter, that their opinions matter, that their experiences matter. And all of that develops that kind of the protective element of mental health, which for me is the most important bit because our mental health goes up and down anyway like it's normal for it to have ups and downs so it's about them always feeling like they've got somebody and as parents that that can be a really privileged role I think that we are that somebody yeah absolutely I, th- I think it's really nice to hear you simplify it into those things the idea of just safety and and connection because I know lots of parents come into our clinic and they'll 
they'll say, you know, is this my fault? Did I do something wrong? And especially even when you say things like you, you've just mentioned, it feels like a huge responsibility to say like, you know, parents shape the child's world. And then if something's wrong, they might maybe feel that sense of guilt or, or maybe be overthinking to the point of, I must say the right thing. Yeah. And then just to hear it simplified as safety and connection, even if you don't know what the right thing in commas is, that those two things are things you can fall back on. Yeah. And really nice to actually to hear that that simplified because at a very basic level, those two things, like you said, are the things that are the foundation for like mental well-being and like psychological safety, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know that I can really kind of connect with something you said there about, you know, parents kind of saying, have I done something wrong? I hear that so much when children have meltdowns, tantrums, outbursts. I don't care what label you put on it. And I'm, I always have to explain that actually those are normal behavioral things and they're actually part of development. And it is not your role as a parent to stop them. It is just your job to provide the connection and the safety so that your child can experience those like really like for them they're really uncomfortable experiences those like big emotions big feelings that take over their brain and their body but if you're able to just sit with them so provide them the connection and the safety that is good enough that is all you have to do for their brain to carry on developing the way it's supposed to and for them to learn from you that you know, these feelings pass, but you're safe, you're a safe person to pass that with. And I think that feeling of blame is so common in parents, guilt and blame, that we often feel like if our, par- if our children behave in a certain way, then it's our fault, It's or we're parenting them wrong. I think it's really hard, just as a society, to understand child development, unless you've been trained in it. And I think that's what I find not right in lots of ways that's part of my instagram pages for that reason that when i became a parent it, it hit me that i have knowledge that actually i think all parents should have um it shouldn't be up to experts to understand basic child development we have other skills but when you know big things happen but if you have a child you should understand basic child development so that you can let go of the guilt and the blame and just focus on those basics which for me are connection and safety that's good enough it's very interesting that the the example that you gave of like a tantrum if we kind of roll with that for a second that to me and and i'm sure you agree is another way of communicating that's not language that's saying you know something is going on right and i think again maybe as a society or maybe the way we think of these things is that having like a tantrum or a, a meltdown or whatever label it is that that is like wrong that's something that shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Or can you maybe explain like a little bit from your experience? Cause maybe I'm, I'm not as aware. What, what can that be a sign of? What can the kind of outbursts or the tantrums or what, what are they a sign of? Yeah. So many different things. This is like a massive topic in its own. <laughs> <laughs> but with really little ones, it can be like anxiety. It can be a sign of something is really not right, like in my body. So sometimes it's illness, like your child might be expressing a pain, that they're in pain in some way, but they can't explain it. So often children do become more irritable when they're sick. So really little ones. For example, if your child has a headache and they are pre-verbal or just learning a few words, a bit like Adna, but not full words, they won't be able to tell you that their head hurts. And it's not something you can see. 
So as a parent, you can't see a headache. What you might see is irritability or, you know, some parents might label it as tantrums or misbehavior. But what they're trying to say, there's something not right, like something's not right with my body. And what they need is connection and safety. And if you comfort, even if you don't know they have a headache, it's not your fault that you don't know. And it's also not their fault they can't tell you. So again, if we go back to the basics, if you just offer the safety and the comfort that you always do, they will feel better. They won't take the headache away, but they'll feel better. So it can be a sign of illness. It can be a sign of anxiety is one of the big ones that comes out in like behavioral ways often, even in adults. So anxiety is a very physical emotion. So many adults experience physical signs of anxiety in their body, whether it's in their gut or it's in, which is often really common, or it's often in just like, you know, palpitations, etc. And children get that too. They just haven't got the words or the labels for it. Uh, again, it can be a sign of something being out of sync in their life. So their routine being out of whack a little bit can cause them distress because they don't understand. So routine, again, gives them that kind of safety and comfort of, I understand my day. Um, and that can happen up to the age of six, that actually shifting a routine just a little bit makes children more irritable. But it, again, it, it links with anxiety a little bit, just kind of unpredictability in their life. That's quite interesting because I think at that age, at like five or six, like parents might expect a child to be able to verbalize that. Yeah. But the child might even not be aware of, of those changes or not be aware of, of what's going on for them and have those things again that are maybe labeled as mis, misbehaving or Absolutely. like you know, not, not following authority or whatever that is. Yeah. And we, it's this problem. Um, I, I guess that's it segues nicely into, into maybe the next part, part that, that I wanted to ask you, which is about are there kind of signs of a child's those psychological needs not being met or how do we as parents or family members recognize when a child's psychological needs aren't aren't being met yeah it's a really good question i think so there is obviously a difference between normal and then something is wrong the something is wrong is when your child starts to behave in a way like it could be irritability but it doesn't go away so it, it stays and it stays in a way that impacts on their everyday life. So it's, it's about the function of the behavior, I guess. And it's about the impact it has on their quality of life. So if some children lose their appetite when they're not feeling well, but also when they're feeling anxious or they have something emotional happening. Um, and again, you know, if they start to not thrive, I know that obviously for little ones, that's a really big sign that something's going on. And sometimes it can be emotional rather than physical. Um, for older children, it's things like their adjustment to school life, friendships, kind of everyday joy. I think if your child is irritable all the time and they're kind of losing enjoyment in activities, losing kind of you don't see them having a calm moment or having like a moment where they're in laughing or smiling or whatever. Um, so they might have a couple of tantrums, but if those things are around, then it's pretty much normal. Those things are not around. And there's kind of like, or you notice yourself as a parent, just always being on edge with your child. I think that's a real call for, you might need to talk to somebody and just get some support and think about what's happening. And sometimes it's about minor tweaks, especially with little ones. With teenagers, I get this question a lot because I think teenagers are perceived to all, you know, be young people who sit in their room and 
withdraw from parents, um, hang out with their friends, don't want to see their adults. And that's normal. That's part of their developmental stage, which is really appropriate. They, they need to be with their peers. It's about individuation, you know, that separation from the parents and them developing their own identity. But again, there are signs for me, which are very similar to what I say about little ones. If your child is not really with you, so even on a weekend is a good example. If your child is always in their bedroom and then they just come down and eat and then they go back to their bedroom. So you you have less than maybe an hour or two a weekend where you see them. That to me is a risk factor. So it's a risk. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong, but there's something also not quite right that is not the way I would expect, you know, with thinking about protective factors, that's not protective of your child. And again, if you don't see their joy, if all you ever see is irritability, if you only ever see them being annoyed and angry and um, miserable, which I think lots of adults go, well, that's just teenagers. And I just think that's not true. That's not just teenagers. Yes, they are miserable sometimes, but they also have fun. And if you don't see it, then I would worry about that because something's not right. And I guess with teenagers, there's other signs as well. You know, if they, um, if you ever see them or notice that they may have self-harmed or there's ever a doubt that they've self-harmed, I take that really seriously. Um, and I guess one of the things that I've noticed more recently is lots of parents feeling like self-harm is just part of being a teenager, okay. like a bit of like a, a rite of passage. And I would just say that if you see your child, even if it's a scratch, because some teenagers scratch or pick, I would take that really seriously. Again, as you were saying, Joe, it is a form of communication. They're communicating something and it's often distress. And it's not normal for young people to scratch or to properly harm themselves. So again, safety, connection. The one thing as a parent to do in those sorts of situations is to just listen to your child, but also express your concern. So you can say, I'm worried about you. You're spending too much time in your bedroom. We'd like to see your face, you know? So kind of making it really explicit um, is the way to kind of open up the conversation and then kind of, again, curiosity, kind of maybe your child is fine. They just like hanging out in their room. But if you make a rule that actually you can't be in your room all day, every day, then you're opening up the possibility of seeing what, what mood they're in like in terms of their mental health state yeah. um i think it's i think it's really interesting what you say there about self-harm because i i did work in the uk with with young people and there was quite a bit of self-harm in, in those units and a lot of the chat between them often was um self-harm is like you mentioned a, a kind of sign but they would say that self-harm is a, a cry for attention but i guess the way that we see it maybe is like maybe that someone needs that attention. Maybe that's Absolutely. a sign that that's a sign that, that we should engage with them or yes. like you said, that they are telling us something. So although it might be a cry for attention, maybe they need that attention. Maybe that is the sign that they're telling you that something's going on. And I think that again, is a segue into, into the next part that I really thought was maybe the, the core part of why I'd like to talk to you was around um, how, or I guess, what are the, what are the common parts from from your experience in working with families that uh, i guess the best the bits the parents miss what are what are the bits that are the common issues that crop up in terms of when people aren't getting their their needs met um what are the kind of common things that you would work on 
in your are there any i guess are there any common things that that crop up in terms of how parents might support their their children better yeah i mean maybe i don't know i think there's a big variety of things i think what you've just said there is is one of those key things so i often speak to parents about the word manipulation and the word clinginess and you know like you're saying like doing something for attention that is exactly as you said it's a communication and i think as adults again we see some communications as being like not appropriate for a child in terms of like that's not okay like you're doing that for attention so i'm not going to give it to you because we see it as like they're manipulating us and we don't want to be manipulated like we're the adults that's not okay um but there is that kind of sense isn't there like I mean, one example might be fake crying. I'm, I'm doing quotes with my fingers. <laughs> but that idea that little ones sometimes fake cry. And I always see it as, yeah, but they're, they're telling you something. Just because there's not real tears coming out their eyes doesn't mean they're not trying to express something. They are. Like fake crying takes effort, you know. They're trying to say something to you. And dismissing it or ignoring it also gives a really important message, which is something else I talk about a lot. So the message of not doing anything is a really powerful message. Like ignoring your child when they fake cry, when they do something for attention, or you know, you feel manipulated in some way, that is a message that is still a response. It's not a non-response, it's a response, which might mean, depending on the situation, what you're doing is not important enough for me to pay attention to it, or I don't wanna give you attention when you're behaving like this, which gives a real communication to your child about, I have to behave in a certain way to be accepted or tolerated or wanted. And I think as we grow up as adults, we've, we've all got some of that. We've all had as children, like behaviors or parents have ignored, et cetera. And there will be situations where we notice ourselves not doing certain things because we think I'm not going to be accepted or I'm not gonna be liked if I actually show this thing. For example, I'd, I say this a lot because it's another thing that people come up to me and talk to me a lot, which is about anger. Anger was not acceptable in my household. And I don't think that's strange. I think that's very common, but that means that I have a kind of a relationship with anger that I've had to work on a lot because I don't feel like I'm allowed to be angry with people. I don't feel like it's a valid thing when actually that affects sometimes things like my assertiveness or it affects me meeting my own needs because often anger is a mask for unmet needs. But I am kind of saying to myself, those needs are not important because nobody should see you being angry so those are some of the things I think come up a lot in terms of like parents yeah. I would say misunderstanding but also kind of learning as a society these things like children don't manipulate I see that all the time and I often get parents going oh, that's not true they do and I think they're trying to connect with you what they're doing is maybe in not a very um attractive way trying to have a relationship with you that is what they're doing Yeah. when they like fake cry or you like self-harm. It is a call for attention, but you need to look at that because when you don't, they do something bigger. They will just escalate the behavior until somebody notices them. So noticing it means that you might be stopping it yeah. and then hopefully offering them something that they do need, which is 
more like appropriate than self-harm. Yeah, it's like a cry for attention, but attention that they that they probably need or that they almost yeah. more certainly need. It's it's very interesting that you you talk about like the way anger was treated in your house because those things are stuff that come up in, in my clinic quite a lot. I work with people generally with emotional eaters and it's very interesting tying or, or trying to make some links between the current behavior and the past behavior, how emotions were often suppressed at some level somewhere, whether it was, you know, the difficulty of like losing a family member or something. And, you know, it wasn't okay to cry. It was like, oh, you had to pull yourself together and deny yourself those emotions at the time. And maybe that's expressed through food now and um, because it, it can't be expressed maybe through, or I guess it was always told or, or you were always given the message that expressing those feelings are weak or they're not appropriate in this context or whatever. Do you think that that's something that, I, I guess it is a societal thing. It's definitely a, a something that I would imagine a lot of parents do is like the idea that I think you've definitely spoke about this at some point, you know, big boys don't cry that kind of idea of, oh, you're crying, there's nothing to cry about. But what, what message is that giving off to our to our kids when we're when we're saying things like that? Yeah, I think those narratives are really stuck. And I think the only way to unstick them is little by little, all of us in our own homes challenging them. I think, you know, that's that's the way to kind of really question and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think if we're talking about parenting, one of the things that happens is like family scripts, they follow us and therefore we often do what was done to us because it feels familiar and because it feels right, because that's what we had. And if we had it and we turned out okay, like most of us did, then we think, well, then what's wrong with just repeating it? There's nothing wrong with it. And I guess my question, my not my question, but my thought is, Maybe there's nothing wrong with how any of us turned out. I think I'm all right. But I think there's also a better way. I think actually my daughter could turn out better than me. And if that's possible, then that's like a good thing. Like rather than just repeating things because they were okay, sometimes we need to adapt to the evidence base, adapt to the knowledge we have. And like just being aware, again, that curiosity bit, just being curious about why you say what you say. So it's exactly that, you know, big boys don't cry. Sometimes that's like something we've heard. And so we just say it like our mouths just kind of say it because it's easy. You know, it's again, familiar, it's habitual. But if we say something like that and go, why did like, why did that come from? Why did I say that? What is that about? Then we might notice that one, maybe that was just what was done to us or what we heard in our house, in our family or in our society. And maybe it's also because when our little boy cries, we find that really difficult because we're not used to seeing men cry or men show emotions. And we see a boy crying and we think, don't do that. That's uncomfortable for everyone. And it's about kind of acknowledging that some of that is about our discomfort with an experience that maybe is new to us. And what, you know, what do we want to kind of help our child learn? So that, again, those messages. So what, what, um, is, what is like an appropriate response to those things? If, if you're someone who's listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I do that all the time. I'm always, you know, telling my child not to cry or I'm always, you know, um, telling them that there's nothing to be sad about or nothing to be angry about what's the even if you don't know like the right way what's like an appropriate way or what's maybe a better way listen to the sadness and name it so if your boy's crying you say oh you're crying 
Are you feeling sad? It's okay to feel sad. That's an appropriate response. Sit with it. If you're, like crying is such a powerful thing. Crying takes a lot of physical, like our physical energy. Our body's doing a really big job when we cry. We create water like in our eyes. Like if you actually think about the physical effort of doing that, like we, we're creating water. So even just thinking about that, it's important. If your child is crying or showing, you know, tears, notice it. And even if you think, oh, I don't know what to do, this is a really uncomfortable thing to be dealing with, just saying what you see. So I can see you're crying. Do you feel sad? So you could ask. Sometimes it might not be sadness. It might be something else. And then you can just say, it's okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel sad. Just saying that to your child, you're basically saying to your child, your, all your feelings are valid and they are acceptable. And I accept them as your parent. I tolerate and I accept them. It's the same for something like anger. You know, you look angry. You're allowed to be angry. This is something I say all the time. You're allowed to be angry with me which I think feels like, oh, no, but of course your child's allowed to be angry with you. Of course they are. Like, you know, I get angry with my husband all the time. It doesn't mean that I'm going to like leave him, but I'm still angry with him. We need to learn to tolerate that our child has their own experiences and their own emotions and they're not about us. Yeah. So remembering that you're angry with me, that's your anger, that's not me. You're, you're allowed to be angry with me I'm still not going to let you like break this or kick or whatever it is you're doing, but you can be angry with me. That's okay. Or you can be sad and cry. You're allowed to do that. I think when it's little girls who cry, we respond, we as a society respond very differently. We often are quicker to kind of comfort and say that. I think when it's boys that I think as a society, we do find that harder and so it is about kind of remembering why is it that men are not allowed to have emotions and what kind of, I know you're a man obviously, but what kind of men are we trying to like bring up in our society? Because, you know, women are, women are labeled as being emotional, but men are not. So men are just as emotional as women. Like, oh, no. <laughs> or more, like, you know, it's not a gender thing. Emotion is not gendered. Emotion is human. So we all feel the same. It's just about how we show it and express it. And we should all be allowed to feel because, you know, there's, there's our human experiences are valid, all of us. Yeah. And I think, I think as the parents who are listening to this, that's an example of just, like you said, validating your, your child's experience, because often it will be like probably incredibly valid, like re a really appropriate response. It's like they're angry. Maybe they have felt wronged or felt, you know, something difficult has happened. Maybe they feel sad because maybe something sad happened. Um, and us trying to change that is trying to give them maybe a less appropriate response or a very different response to what is entirely appropriate. Um, and one of the things we do as, as a society, and one thing that I really want to pick your, pick your brains on is um, how we kind of uh, pathologize some of those emotions. And there's often labels associated with them like, oh, if you cry all the time, you are depressed. But the bit I wanted to, to ask you about was the use of kind of labels and diagnostics in, in children. And if you mm -hmm. feel they are helpful or not and obviously it's not a black or white uh, answer or a yes or no answer um i guess when it comes to 
people in in our service they come in and we often hear parents say like does my child have depression or do they have anxiety or autism or whatever it is you know they they want to understand it in a way that has a, a maybe a diagnostic element to it or a label attached to it how do you work with with labels or do you use them or do you find it's helpful or, or unhelpful what are the kind of i guess consequences of using labels yeah such a big topic i think really good questions i think as professionals if we are you know if you are a professional psychologist you really should be thinking about this is kind of my wider message i think as a society it's not just parents but i think as a society we like things to be easy so if we have a label then maybe it means it is this one thing and it's easy and I have some understanding. And I think that's often what parents want. They want help to understand a situation that feels overwhelming, distressing. And if they have a label, it's like having a thing, then maybe I can use that to make sense of everything else. I guess there are pros and cons of everything, but I am somebody who really deconstructs labels with children and families because once I think the words we use are very powerful and labels are incredibly powerful they they ascribe a certain meaning to something and once you have a label it's really hard to take that away so if you say that a child has depression often what happens is whenever this child like children are still developing and they're growing and their brains are changing and as we talked earlier like they're having new experiences every single day and one of the things that can happen is if if you talk about a child as being depressed and then they become a young person when they cry you know we were talking about crying a minute ago when they cry or show emotion they will easily say and label that as, well, that's because I've got depression. And other people around them will also label it as, oh, depression's back. When actually, they might just be feeling sad because something sad has happened and it's not depression. Depression is a very specific thing. So I think I very strongly avoid labels, emotional diagnostic labels with children. I call it low mood. I focus on behavior even things like anxiety, I will ask children to tell me what it's called because anxiety doesn't make any sense to a child. It's meaningless. That's our label for something. But if you say to a child, what does that feel like? They sometimes say things like wobbly or scary. That's the label. That's what we're going to use. It does not like the label has for me has to be owned by a child. They have to be able to make sense of this thing that they carry with them. Um, and again, for me, it's about who diagnostic labels are for, who are they useful to? I don't actually think they're useful to parents or children. I think they can sometimes be useful to professionals. And then it's about how we use that label to maybe formulate, to maybe think about like care, treatment plans, etc. Whether we need to use that label with our families and our children that is different. And I try not to because I don't think it helps to tie children's identity with labels like that. Especially at an age where, where, like you said, they want to kind of understand it very simplistically. For a child who's, who's trying to understand maybe those feelings of wobbly, they're not going to understand that like 
anxiety itself is like a feeling you know it's it ranges and everyone has it and it can kind of come and go like we had someone in, in our clinic recently who said at the end of, of their session so do i have anxiety and it it very much showed to me that like they think it's like a an illness like a thing that they have or don't have it, rather than being able to understand it in the context of everyone has it and maybe you feel it sometimes more frequently maybe you feel it in certain situations so i think i think i'm on the same page in terms of labels sorry i cut you off there no that's perfect i i think about living with so we all live with all these emotions all the time anxiety anger sadness whatever embarrassment you know all those feelings that we live with them it's just that sometimes they grow and sometimes they shrink and it's about how we, if they're starting, like we talked about earlier, if they're starting to get in the way of life and joy and enjoyment and activities, then we need to work on ways to make them shrink a little bit. But it, for me, it's about normal distress, like, you know, normal experiences of distress that our children and families are experiencing. And sometimes the label isn't helpful. I guess the only caveat I would have on that, and that for me, it's a personal slash professional one, is when children do have something like autism and they are living with autism. To me, that label and some other labels linked with learning disabilities can be really helpful. But again, I think it's about how we use the label um, in, again, a, a conscious way, because there are services that children and family can receive if they have a label. And if the label's not there, they can't receive it. I don't agree with that. It, but you know what as an alone person I'm not going to change that system but again it's about helping the label autism again it's meaningless because unless you know that child you don't know what autism means in their life it's different for everybody so then it's about how you as a family unit and help your child understand what it is that they live with so the things that are meaningful to them and how you then talk about it to people so i've worked with people who never use the label autism other than on a paper to get what they need in terms of resources and support but when they talk to people they will say my child you know struggles in a busy environment so she needs this you know my child needs to wear headphones when we go out because it's too the cars are too loud and it it's distressing for her, for example. But then that's meaningful. There's like a meaningful story that you're sharing with people, which is not the same as just saying, this is my child and they have autism. It's really um, interesting because I think even that example can be carried over into things like anxiety and depression rather than being like, I am anxious, I can't do X, Y, and Z because that's what people who, for example, have social anxiety, social anxiety, we can't do this. It nearly fits you into a bracket before you even have the chance to see if that's something that you can or can't do. And maybe a, a great way of putting it might be something similar to what you just mentioned. You know, I, I struggle in big groups um, and that's something about me rather than that's my anxiety and, and I can't do that because of anxiety or, or something along those lines. It's yeah. very much normalizing a pretty human experience, you know? Yeah. And it's about identity. I really like that example with social anxiety because it is for, for me, it's about children, young people's adults identity being yours. You do not become anxiety or social anxiety. That isn't who you are. You are you. And there are things that, 
we all have different needs. We all have things that are strengths and things that are weaknesses in how we are. You know, it's it's normal, it's healthy. And we all will have situations that we struggle with a bit more. And if we're able to understand it as a struggle that you're working on, then that removes the kind of it's inside me and there's no way I can change it because it externalizing it in that way, kind of making it into a thing I experience sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes in these situations, I experience this. So I need X, Y, and Z. Then you can find solutions like new solutions, but also find the support that helps you live your life rather than feeling like it's just me. I can't do anything because it's, it's me. It's who I am. And just even framing it that way opens the door for change. It opens the door for, you know, it's not a black and white box. It's like my experience and my experience can change essentially. I, I wonder what you think about those labels. And do you think that from a young age, if someone is kind of put into those categories or whatever, do you think it's maybe preemptive or like, it almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, they nearly go down that route sometimes or could it have that impact? I think I think it can. I think it's not, I never think of everything, anything as black and white, but I think um, I have met adults who will say I'm anxious, you know, like, like, like they might say I'm British or something. And I'm like, okay. Um, and it's that kind of embodiment of, an emotion or a label, then I think that can happen because it happens through language and language creates our meaning for our world as humans. You know, we socially construct everything that we experience through the words that we use. And I think if we start to use words, emotional words as part of our identity, it becomes very hard. Like, so I think it is a risk that that happens. And I know so many, you know, uh, you know, I'm a worrier happens all the time. I'm a worrier. Like, what, what is that? Like, what is a worrier? Like, I worry about stuff too, but I don't think I'm a worrier. But it's, it, it happens, you know, like we all do it. And it sounds like it's not important, except if you get to know some of those people who talk about themselves like that, what you often discover is that a lot of everyday situations that would be normal distress that would we would all feel distressed about they perceive as I'm experiencing this a lot worse than everybody else because I'm anxious because I'm a worrier rather than this is this is a difficult situation and everybody would experience that you know in in a difficult way maybe and we would all worry about x y and z but that their experience is well it's me I'm the problem and I think that is that is a risk of that, especially with children as they're developing because they're they're learning who they are in the world. They're forming an identity. And for me, that's why labels with children, I think need to be used even more like sparsely, if at all, and more mindfully because it shapes who they are. They, they're kind of creating a sense of adults say this about me, so this must be who I am. Yeah. And they haven't, they haven't formed an identity yet. You know, identity is shaped through our experiences. And therefore, for me, the experiences we give children is really key to allow, again, it all links to everything we've talked about. We're shaping their experiences, whether we're saying, you know, little boys don't cry, or we're saying you're anxious, you know, like that shapes the experience of, okay, this is who I am. I am a boy and boys don't cry. And 
I have, you know, I live with anxiety. So, oh, I'm anxious. I'm an anxious boy. But also I can't cry. You know, whatever that is. And I've met lots of people. Yeah, I've met lots of people, even like my age now, older than me, people who come into the clinic who say things like, oh, I don't cry. Not that I haven't cried, but I don't. And it's very entangled with who they are. Like you mentioned, all those labels can very much tie into who that person is. And, and challenging that and disentangling someone's identity can often be quite threatening, especially like the work you do in, in later life when you've had maybe that identity for quite a while. That can be threatening to their maybe sense of self or, or something like that. So Absolutely. It's, it's protective as well. It's become like, this is a thing that protects me. This is who I am. If you take that away, who are they? Yeah, incredibly difficult. And, and one of the, the things that we should definitely consider and, and parents who I, I hope will be listening will consider in terms of their language and how they work maybe with professionals and, and things like that. Yeah, I think I think the language we use with our kids is really important. And it seems sometimes so simple, but it's actually really hard because sometimes we use, you know, phrases like quite flippantly and we just say them. So it's about catching them and kind of, like we said at the beginning, kind of recognizing where those words are coming from, why that we're saying them. Is there something else that we can say that would be more useful? to our child yeah i think that's i think that's incredibly helpful and, and an incredibly incredibly good message to to maybe end on i'm aware that that we're running out of time but um marta i really appreciated your time it's been incredibly insightful i feel like i could do this podcast every day for the next week and i still have things to talk about um but that was incredibly helpful i really appreciate your time um it'd be great if you could maybe wrap up with where people can find you or find your content or or if you're doing anything that you want to uh, mentioned that'd be great yeah sure it's been really nice talking to you <laughs> i've really enjoyed this um where can people find me so i'm on instagram it's a very long i don't i'm not very instagram friendly i feel with my <laughs> what is it called handle um my name um i don't even have the like jargon for instagram that's how bad i am with labels but it's <laughs> dr mdc and then underscore pediatric underscore psychologist um but if you also just put my name martha m-a-r-t-h-a and then psychologist i come up so people will find me and i've got a website um i work for the nhs but i also offer um private sessions and i offer kind of one-off consultations so if there's like a pressing question that you have or some something that you're not quite sure whether you need support with or you don't know who needs to support you with I sometimes signpost you to the right service or even help you think about what do you need to request from your GP in terms of just sometimes when you're not in services it can be feel quite tricky to know how to get the support that you need so I have I offer 20 minute calls which are more about that kind of supportive quick kind of questions and then our one hour one-off consultations um yeah i don't know what else to say marta that's been absolutely incredible and um, i really appreciate your time i'm sure everyone who will have listened to this parents and all will, will have got so much from it so i really appreciate it and thank you you're welcome